Welcome to episode 32 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and our guest this week is someone I've worked with on and off over the past decade at ESPN and here at True Media. And more importantly, he's one of the godfathers of basketball analytics. He literally wrote the book on the subject back in 2003 when he published his book, Basketball on Paper. He's worked for four different NBA teams and ESPN and True Media. And if you've been around the sports analytics space long, you probably know his name and his work. He's Dean Oliver, who's currently an assistant coach for analytics with the Washington Wizards. In our conversation, Dean and I will talk about what he learned in his first season on the bench with the Wizards, his role during a game, the importance of using video with data, how NBA analytics have changed over two decades, how basketball analytics is like ice cream, where to start if you're getting to know NBA data, the importance of telling a story when using numbers, working in the media at ESPN, how basketball on paper came to be and how Bill James was involved, Dean's thoughts on his four factors 17 years later, when he first thought he had a chance to work in basketball, and memories from his playing days at Caltech. Then True Media's Albert Lakata will join me to share stories and Deanisms from our time working with him both at ESPN and here at True Media. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with the Washington Wizards' Dean Oliver. We're joined now on Expected Value by Dean Oliver, assistant coach for analytics with the Washington Wizards, who just completed their season. Dean, welcome to the show. I'd like to start with you from about a year ago. You left True Media for the Wizards and a different sort of job than you'd had previously in the NBA. The process behind that, how did that assistant coaching gig come about for you? It came about very quickly, frankly. I had been going out to Summer League for years um, and, and talked to people about what they're doing, about what True Media could maybe do for them. Um, but my relationships in the NBA were, were deep, um, and Tommy Shepard was out there uh, that year and called me in and actually talked to me with, uh, with Scotty Brooks out there. I'm like, okay. Uh, so <laughs> breakfast meeting with both of them, and uh, that's when the possibility of actually working uh, with a coaching staff very closely came about. I didn't realize at that time that it was going to be an assistant coaching position, but it was, it was a good conversation with both of them. Uh, with Tommy, it's easy because I've known him for so long. And frankly, with Scotty, I'd, I'd met him a couple times before, once when I, I was at ESPN. Mm-hmm. And then I think one other time when I had, had visited the Wizards and just said hello. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a good conversation. It just turned into, yeah, a position that I could dream about when I was 12. So. so what does an assistant coach for analytics do? And maybe how was that role different than what you had done uh, with the Sonics or Nuggets or Kings? Yeah, what I'd been doing uh, for those teams, especially more after the Sonics, I, I did some work with the coaching staff in each of those places, but it was really um, separate. I wasn't involved in coaching meetings. Uh, I wasn't. I would walk in on practice and stuff and, and listen to them, but it wasn't my major responsibility. I had a lot of other responsibilities. In this case, it is to know what the coaches are thinking about, what they're talking about, understanding what they need to answer the questions they have. Um, and, and frankly, the role will evolve because I want mm-hmm. to make sure I listened a lot and made sure I understood the questions that were important to them early on this season. And then it evolved as I could get answers to them. I could also steer them in a certain direction and, and, and continue just to try to support the things that they have questions about 
raise more questions, give them answers that kind of led to other questions. Um, I do talk to players, some players more than other, based upon kind of the way we think about the game. Uh, there are certain you try to you try to handle the low hanging fruit, the players who would probably be the most receptive first. But uh, yeah, that opportunity is quite a bit different than what I had done before. So the biggest key just seems like I'm almost just pure access that you're around them all the time. And that's got to help a ton as you're trying to build your relationships and trust and all that and communication, things like that, right? Yeah, access is, is really important. I mean, the fact that when you have those interactions, you're not just talking about basketball. Frankly, it's kind of ironic. Yes, mm-hmm. you build you some trust by talking about basketball, but you also build some of that trust by talking about other things. In fact, you can be on the road, hang out on the bus, uh, go between practice, shoot around, all these kind of things, and talk about other stuff. Also builds up that, that depth of familiarity with each other. And that's helpful. And, and I don't want to underplay the fact that there are questions that they talk about in meetings that that I hadn't thought about. I, I had done work with coaching staff and I had a lot of tools prepared for it, but I had to develop a number of new ones as well. So it's both. It's both that personal relationship access and knowing the detailed questions. Um, it sounds like a two-way street. Would that be an accurate rendition where sometimes you know you might have an idea and you come to a coach or player and sometimes they would also come to you with, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Did it work both ways? Uh, it has to be. And I, I can tell you, I don't know if it ever gets to exactly the relationship you want. And I, I will say, yeah, this is first year and a crazy year, of course, Yeah, where I'm still trying to build up to where I think it's um, what I want it to be. Yeah, uh, that's a fair way of describing it. So in game, you know, see you on the bench at times in the pre-bubble world, at least. What are you thinking about doing? What's your role from an in-game standpoint there? I'd say my role is actually pretty similar to the rest of the uh, behind-the-bench coaches. We all kind of take notes on what's going on. Um, various people have specific assignments of what they're doing. Um, and the ones closer to the head coach, they have very specific things that they might uh, provide in-game and such. Uh, but we're all taking notes. And at halftime or at specific times, you may pass information uh, directly to the front of the bench coaches. Um, in my case, of course, the the way I do things, having tracked games for a long time is manually. I, I track things in game in great detail, not only for the purposes of doing things during the game, um, but also to make sure I have good notes for post game, things to look at uh, when I look at tape later, or things to look at in stats later, uh, depending on things. And just to make sure I keep track of my own state of mind during the game. <laughs> Because the danger is, yeah, it's, it's easy to get emotional, either high or low, and sometimes it distorts your judgment. And I want to see whether I am overreacting, and there are definitely times where I did, and times where I was keeping a good, calm profile and understanding what was going on at court. So that's, that's what I do. I, my, my family jokes that I'm constantly writing things down and scribbling things. and things like that. mm-hmm. That's what they see, my head down taking notes and then looking back up. How does the in-game stuff work from a I guess, data and analysis standpoint? Because obviously you can't take an hour or half an hour or really even five minutes sometimes to do a research project or, or dive deep into something like that. So I'm curious what you have access to and then kind of how you're processing data and information from an in-game standpoint for either halftime or, or right afterward in post-game, something like that. Uh, yeah, during the game, we can't get any specific feed analytics or anything like that. 
so it, it's interesting. Like some of what I keep track of or what I think are the most important things to keep track of that may not come to me in the printed box score that comes. Uh, and frankly, when you're on the road, a lot of times these team, the teams are supposed to be performing. You, you don't necessarily get those, those box scores. So right. I like having some idea of what those things are through my own tracking. So at halftime, I will take a look at the stats. I will, we have kind of a more detailed processed uh, version of those stats. And I, I will look at those, but we have five minutes mm-hmm. uh, for all the coaches, uh, the video guy and, and Scotty to really understand and digest before you talk to the players. So some half times I'm completely quiet um, because I think we're all seeing it the same way or because I don't necessarily see anything we can or should change. Um, other times, yeah, I will say, it. I, I think this is something, but I've got to say it very concisely because we have so little time. And so how did that change? Obviously, so you were not in the bubble uh, down in Orlando. How did your role shift uh, once the team kind of had to split into a couple pieces? Pre-game meeting became more important. That became, and I actually more important, it became the main thing that I could really contribute to the group. Um, I did talk to a lot of the coaches on a regular basis individually when they were down in the bubble, sometimes about just getting a feel for what the players were doing, sometimes communicating things that I saw. Um, sometimes, okay, there may be projects that come out of what we're talking about. But really the opportunity with the group was our pregame meetings, which, yeah, we're doing with all these, the, uh, the Zoom meetings and things like that. What did you kind of learn from this year? You'd obviously spent time in the NBA before. This was a different role. What did you kind of learn and, and take away from the process this season? I think uh, I learned a lot of the things that I don't know about what um, a lot of the coaching staff has to do both physically and, and mentally, because I, having not spent as much time uh, with the coaching staff, I didn't realize the intensity with which they work on the advanced scouting stuff, how that was organized. I didn't realize how much time went into the player development side, the organization of, of what they're doing and the follow-up on some of that, uh, what pieces of information they already have, what pieces of information they don't have, I didn't realize some of those inner workings for how a coaching staff really does put a lot of stuff together and Mm. seeing that and still, and frankly, still digesting where are the best points for me to input my knowledge, um, input data, input, whatever I might, even my physical self to, to help with uh, player development, those kind of things. I'm still, you know, you're still trying to figure out what the best role is. I think it's important to note, you know, you're not the only, let's say, analytics person the Wizards have. And I was just perusing the front office roster, and I think there's five people, including you, that have some sort of title related to strategy and analytics. So if, if you could, could you kind of paint you know, a, a rough picture of what is this analytics staff doing for an NBA team, how you're reaching these different areas that you talk about, like player development, uh, advanced scouting, things along those lines, because you're obviously not the only one. What are you kind of collectively trying to do as, as an analytics group there? Trying to inject really um, good data, logical analysis that it's kind of hopefully proven to some degree uh, into a lot of decision making and, and planning, those kind of things. With the staff that we have, it's, it is a kind of a diverse group. Uh, some people who are more, who really are into some of the weeds of the analytical process. Uh, some people who um, certainly have 
faith understand a lot of the general principles and are comfortable with basic numbers. Um, because all of this uh, is important in communicating it all up to right. the decision makers. So we all do, uh, we all, I think the analytics staff generally speaks the same language pretty easily. We can all talk a lot of the, some of the, the details, maybe not all the coding stuff. There's different levels of that within our group, but the idea is uh, the lang- that language among us is all is pretty common. Good. You have, I've heard you speak many times just talking about the importance of communication. You referenced it there. Uh, and you've talked about how you have some players who are more into things than others. So what are the keys, a couple of keys that you have to getting through to, I mean, anybody, anyone you're meeting here for the first time, anyone who's, you know, you're new to the team, they're new to the team, whatever it might be. What are a couple of keys that you have found? I mean, this goes back your whole career, basically. And it's it's a big thing that you explain pretty well. What are some of the keys that you found communicating to get you know, what might be a complex point across uh, to a player or a coach or someone who's a little less analytically inclined? I think there's a one big key is video. Uh, hmm. Video, using video to represent an analytical point is is really, really helpful. It's it's one of the most common languages <laughs> that sports really use. It's not just basketball for yeah. communicating what is going on on a court. I mean, everybody knows how to look at a court. Everybody knows how to see the relationship between players. And hopefully if we're doing our job well, you can identify really good examples and counterexamples to make your point. Video is, is critical. And I've had pretty good su- success with that um, and a couple of things that I've done. Uh, I think the other aspect is really kind of what I was talking about before and that we'll always need to get better. And particularly I, uh, as I get to know everybody better, um, just having those relationships that are established in many ways, you talk about more than basketball. Because if you're if you're always coming and, and talking to someone about just what you did wrong, you don't want to do that. You want to you want to talk to them as a person. Um, you've been in the NBA for 20 years, on and off now. How have you seen attitudes evolve toward data, toward analytics in that time? Whether it's a, a coaching, front office, player standpoint, any of those. How have you seen all that change over the past couple of decades? I think there is less of feeling that it's a threat. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, at the early stage, uh, there were a number of people who felt like it was a threat. It was a threat to their job. It was a threat to the way they did their job. It was a threat to uh, their success, maybe because we were on the other side. Um, And I think now, um, to some degree, that, that feeling that it's a threat is gone. It's, it's still a little bit of a, an unknown, and some people try to talk it down. I, I think there, there are also this confusion that, frankly, a number of us have talked about. What's the difference between stats, statistics, and analytics? I think analytics gets used as a broad term for just kind of looking at stats. And to some degree, that is, is true. But I think the, the diversity of the profession now, the depth of the talent pool in the profession, understands that, yeah, you're trying to analyze. That's, that's the analytics part that is really analyzing questions that are associated with basketball. And I don't think that was well understood at the start. I think people viewed analytics as, well, how many three-pointers did you make? Okay, that's just a stat. What does it mean towards winning and losing? What does it mean towards building a better player? Those are the kind of 
questions that we're answering, and always have been, but I don't think people will recognize that as much then as they do now. How much is all the tracking data, the, the big influx over the past several years, how much has that changed uh, what you can do, what you look at from a data and analytics standpoint? It's, it changes the flavor. If basketball is ice cream, uh, it really changes it. It can change it from chocolate to vanilla to anything. I mean, really, <laughs> it still may taste good for the most part. I mean, there's some flavors that people don't like, but it's still, for the most part, ice cream. Like people say, like, oh, okay, like, we had analytical methods before player tracking. And most of those methods said the same players were good then that we would say are good now using analytical, or using tracking methods and stuff. So, um, but it does, it does change a little bit how you do that and does change the value of some players more than others. Um, it definitely helps understand some of the, the coaching tactics and stuff now because it gets at the X's and O's so much better than what we had statistically before. You could watch tape and you can still watch tape. But now, the phrase that I've used for a very long time, uh, yeah, your eyes watch a game better than numbers do, but numbers watch all the games. That's true about player tracking now. You can get the list of who's good at running pick and roll as a ball handler, as a screener. Um, as a screener defender, all of these kind of things come out of this data. And yeah, sometimes it's a little bit inaccurate, but it tells a pretty good story. What do you see as next from kind of a, a data standpoint? Obviously, you know, we make more advances in, in tracking data and things along those lines. What else do you think might be coming down the line from a basketball data opportunity? I think data, um, I think you figure out what data you need when you've when you fully explore the data that you have, um, may sound a little bit of invasive, evasive, but I think we haven't fully explored this player tracking data to the, the extreme we want. And I, I think, of course, there's there's things that are missing in the tracking data. Like uh, you're mentioning enhancements. We don't know where people's hands and arms and eyes and all these kind of things are. We don't know where they are. So you can always make that better. Um, that's That for sure would help on some things, but again, it changes the flavor. It changes, in that case, it's changing it from like chocolate to Rocky Road. So, <laughs> but it's, um, it does help. And those, those kind of things do help when you realize you push this data to the limit through an analysis, you've gotten to a point where there's just nothing more you can suck out of that data. That's when you start going to the new data. And I, I still feel like personally, uh, this is the first year I've been able to look at them player tracking data in great detail. And I still feel like there's a lot of things for me to extract out of it that will take some time. Anything kind of jump at you from the first year that you can talk about with the data? Like, hey, even just from a, hey, this was really cool standpoint. Now we can look at X or something like that. No, not that I can tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I want to ask from someone looking, if someone's looking to get into basketball analytics specifically, uh, what is kind of what's available out there that that they could dive into? You know, I mean, we know about well, there's in the NFL. There's a lot of you know, scraper projects and things like that. Baseball has a lot on savant and things along those lines. From a from an NBA standpoint, someone's looking to to dive in. Where would you point them? 
Oh boy, that's a harder question than I I would like it to be, frankly, mm-hmm. because I know that there was player tracking data that was somehow leaked several years ago and that was available and it was a subset of a season. And there are people out there who are working with some player tracking data from a couple years and I don't know exactly where they got it or how public it is or anything like that. Uh, certainly you could dig in and try to get that. But you know what I, I tell people is in general, understand play-by-play. You can scrape play-by-play from the web. You can get mm-hmm. a lot of this. And I feel like several of the people who are coming up think they have to have the latest and greatest data in order to do the latest and greatest work. And sometimes there is stuff from play-by-play that can can show people what you know and how well you understand basketball. Um, and another way that I tell people too is watch a game, watch watch five games and track something consistently over those five games that you think will answer an important basketball question, whether it's about a player's talent or about how to solve a tactic or something related to that, that shows a lot of effort and it shows some depth of thought that frankly, a lot of times outweighs what um, people will put out with some access to the player tracking data, which is so big and takes a while to get your arms around. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to kind of step backward through uh, your career. So you spent about a decade working with NBA teams and then you joined ESPN in 2011 as their director of analytics. From your perspective, coming into this media world, what was different about joining this big media company compared to working for a team? There was a lot of things that were different, but one of the things that I remember was kind of critical for both was the ability to tell a story in that uh, when you're trying to make a, a claim that you want to draft a player, you've got to tell a story about them in this case, translating numbers into the the words for how he's going to help you on the court, what they're going to do, what role they're going to have. And I think that that is the same when you Mm -hmm. get ESPN or any media entity, you have to tell a story um, using some of those numbers. And I I think the beauty of analytical stories is they are grounded in a lot of numbers. And hopefully if you do them the way I believe in doing them, you are building up the story from the, the numbers, not, having a story that you only support with cherry pick numbers. Right. Being at ESPN to see how media really viewed it, that the story really is the thing, the whole thing. Whereas when you're with a team, winning is the thing. Um, mm. How you get there, like playing ugly, all that, whatever. You just want to win. Um, understanding that there are, I remember having conversations with various people about why do we do so many stories on LeBron James, for instance. <laughs> and it, it was it was really interesting conversations um, mm-hmm. because as much as people said they were tired of stories about LeBron James, for instance, at the same if you ask those same people who are complaining about it, who so who do you want a story about? Um, and you did a story about some lesser known player, maybe still a good player. It doesn't get the same click rate and maybe even the same comments from the same kind of people. And it's media is what I learned there was media is very much a reflection of who we are, not necessarily who we think we are or who we want to be. 
Hmm. I thought it was a tremendous exposure uh, for me to not just sports media, but really how media works. Um, as you know, we had Ed Macedo was the big boss in our group there, and he has right. all the background in doing this, and other people there as well had ex- exposure to a lot of other media. And I thought their perspectives on on how to report things and the ethics and things and living in the modern age was fascinating. It was great. A ton of respect for all those people. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like there's a lot of similarities between kind of what we did at ESPN and what people in the analytics space for teams do. What are some of those parallels? You mentioned the storytelling is kind of similar in some ways. What else uh, might you kind of be doing the same or similarly in whether it's media or team? Yeah, it, it, it's reporting on the on the latest stuff. I mean, really, what's going on? It's getting a pulse, right? It's getting a pulse for um, if you're working for a team, it's a pulse of your team, and and what's going right and what's going wrong. That pulse is what grabs people uh, in media as, as well. And ideally, you are telling as, as good a story in each case for the team that that may be how you, how you fix it. I think mm-hmm. with with media, that obviously more and more pundits and such they're out there they they want to have their suggestion for how you might fix that sort of thing too and um i think that that reporting on the pulse the pulse of the team pulse of the league all of these kind of things come into play in both cases i want to go all the way back to your book basketball on paper published uh, around 2003 where did that come from i mean obviously basketball analytics wasn't much of a thing what was the process like that led you to publishing this book that became one of the first uh, basketball analytics texts? Basketball analytics was not a thing at all. The word analytics, <laughs> or as I know, didn't exist at that time. The word analytics is not in that book. I assure you. The, uh, yeah, really the story for, for writing it. So it, it began a long, long time before then when I was in college and I was tracking things. Um, and going through grad school, I, I went through grad school while being a scout. So I was thinking scientifically about the game of basketball for a long time. Um, I actually knew John Hollinger from both of us working on a, on a very distant website back in the late 90s before the word blog existed. So we both both were writing. Um, hmm. I was writing about NBA and he was writing about college basketball for what I think was called the Mining Company. Wow. We were both thinking about writing and and what would be the best ways to do some of this i think he uh i think he did one of his basketball prospectus books and i was thinking about something similar but i wanted to do something that was timeless whereas john was doing something that was meant to be an annual i wanted to write something that okay i'm writing this once i don't know if i'm really ever going to be uh, in the situation where I want to be a writer, I, I like to write, but I don't know if I don't want that to be my profession. So I'm going to get up what I know into a book that will stand by itself. Uh, I talked to Bill James in 2001 about helping me getting a publisher. And he actually asked me to send him sample chapters of the things that I've done. And I sent him a bunch of those things. And uh, I didn't hear from him for quite a while. Uh, it was several months. And of course, the end of September uh, of 2001, we had 9-11. So it was kind of a crazy time. Right. In January of 2002, I heard back from Bill. I asked him, I said, what's going on? Have you had a chance to take a look? And he said, well, actually, I'm going to write my own book on basketball. And I was floored. Like, oh, I've got to beat Bill James at writing a book on basketball. 
<laughs> so um, the news, I, I got an email. It was in the middle of my day at my old job, an engineering job, and I, I almost quit right there on the spot. I, I got up from my desk and started walking towards my boss's office, and then I turned around and I said, I, I need to sleep on this. But the next day, I did go back in and I, I talked to my, I told my boss, uh, we need to talk. The whole, you hate that phrase. We need to talk. Yeah. Went in and I had to explain, first of all, that I effectively had this other life in basketball <laughs> and uh, explained it. And, and she was she was a little bit stunned. Um, and I said, I either need to take a sabbatical or I need to quit. And she granted me the sabbatical. So I had seven months to write the book. And I went to a friend's basement and wrote the book in his basement as fast as I could. Came out great. What happened after that, like after it was published? Like, what was the process for it? maybe gaining some traction and, and getting more attention? Because I first became aware of it several years later. And so I kind of missed the the rollout, if you will. So what was the kind of climb after releasing the book to uh, start getting some attention? And then obviously teams and, and others are more interested in that. Uh, it was a bit of legwork on my part, but uh, really it began, uh, I want to say in March 2004. Frankly, I, I, w- I just got home from work and a friend of mine says, turn on the radio. And there's someone who's talking about what you do. And I turn on the radio and it's Michael Lewis talking about Moneyball, his book uh-huh. that came, that was coming out like right then. And listening to what he was writing about, listening to him talk about the Oakland A's, which are my team, the team mm-hmm. I'm going to see for several years. I'd had Packs to go, go 20 game packs to go see them. And I'm like, they do this? <laughs> that was the first time I said, maybe I have a chance to work in basketball. That was the first time. Over the course of, I was still working as an engineer for the next, uh, I guess, seven, eight months or something like that. When the book came out, there wasn't really any publicity about it. But I had listened and I um, talked to people that I knew within the NBA. I knew someone who actually was a scout in the league. And they felt like there was traction. Uh, NBA general manager were, were reading Moneyball. And there was an opportunity. So I quit my job January 2nd, 2004, I guess it was. Yeah. And I drove around the country trying to get opportunities to talk to different teams. Because if they wanted to know how to do what they do in Moneyball, said, here's my book and here's my car. <laughs> Call. So uh, I did that. I managed to get into the NBA draft combine, which was not called that then, and got an opportunity to walk into a room where, like, the first person I saw is Larry Bird. Ooh. Hi. And looking around, Doc Rivers was there. I got introduced to Sam Presti, who was not a GM at that time. I walk around, I believe Bill Cartwright was there. There were a number of people like, well, okay, this is a good room to be in. Mm-hmm. It, I won't say it immediately exploded, but I got, I got calls and I got oh. opportunities after that. When you look back, you know, we're what, 17 years since that was published. I think the four factors you know, still hold up. Well, what, what do you kind of think looking back now, looking at what you've written, what do you think of it? Uh, as, as with anything, I feel like there are things that I did well. There are things that could always be done better. But mm-hmm. as a framework, 
it stands the test of time. Uh, the, the concept of looking at the team efficiencies look, and then looking at how it breaks down into the four factors, that is something I use to this day to understand what may be going wrong, what, what makes a team good. And even though the methods for evaluating players back then were more primitive, didn't have all the information, that still applies to a lot of leagues around the world where they don't have great data. Right. It still stands. So I'm very happy about that. I'm very pleased that I, I put something out there that is it's a combination of, of this great sport that we all love and math in some ways, and it didn't scare the entire world away. Nice. All right, let's, I'm going to wrap things up with our playing favorites segment where we rip through a number of your favorites, and we will start with a simple question. What is your favorite number and why? I think my favorite number is two. Asking me why, I'm not sure. I remember thinking about it when I was a kid, feeling like two is the minimum number for a team. So I, I've always been a team guy, and I always felt like two, two is a great number. Favorite player for you as a kid, any sport? Magic Johnson, followed closely by Ricky Henderson. You have a favorite game that you have gotten to attend in person? Ooh, favorite game that I've been to in person? It, it might be the first Pro Bowl. So I grew up in Hawaii, and, uh, and they had a Pro Bowl. They had the Pro Bowl over there on a regular basis. So going mm-hmm. to that was, was tremendous. Uh, and that's actually where I first met people in sports going out of the airport. I ended up talking to people who were the Jets. When would that have been? What sort of players are we talking about at that one? Oh, well, I remember the player was Clark Gaines, um, who was named to the Pro Bowl team, um, but couldn't play because he was injured. But I think he had the game where he had 15 receptions or something that year. But I I was like a 13-year-old kid, and I ended up talking to him and, and like their PR guy in the airport. And... They like I was just sitting at the end of the table and they were talking jet stuff. I know everything about what they're talking about. <laughs> everything. So I went over and like, you're with the Jets, and we end up talking. And uh, the guy is the PR guy. He's like, you you should come work for us, the Jets. So when you're 13, you believe all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, and then uh, whatever. Three decades later, you and I were in the the Jets offices together. Not too long. You ago. said it. Yep. There you go. Uh, favorite memory from playing basketball at Caltech, which we'll say wasn't the winningest program around that time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of good ones. I and mean, certainly um, being invested in the whole program since I not only played, I was able to coach my last two years, but probably it's a kind of a combination memory. Is I remember, oh, wait a second. Pomona is playing Kansas. So Pomona was in our division. Okay. This is D3 basketball. Uh-huh. Sophomore year. Like, why is Pomona playing Kansas? What? This is ridiculous. And they get killed like 106 to 30 or something like that. And it turns out they were playing them. And we, we find this out. As I say, it's a combination member. Find out later the reason is because Greg Popovich was a head coach, Ramon Pisser. Huh. And he was good friends with Larry Brown. And they worked that out. And of course, so now, many, many years later, and, and actually Greg Popovich still talks about how, yeah, he lost. He lost to Caltech. It was before I got there, but he huh. lost to Caltech. Mm-hmm. He said, you can't make it to, to the NBA until you lose to Caltech or something like that. <laughs> but, um, I, I do remember that moment where playing Kansas. Yeah. Finally, do you have a favorite 
how did I get here sort of moment, meaning just one of those moments where, you know, wherever you are in your career, you've gotten there, you just kind of take a step back and you're able to kind of soak in uh, the, the thrill, the excitement of it all? Frankly, it happens in many ways a lot of times. I mentioned the one, the NBA draft combine in 2004, being in there and seeing people and being able to talk to them. That, that, was, that was a crazy moment for sure. But I, I can tell you, yeah, walking into a gym, I love being in a gym, whether it's a practice gym or uh, an NBA arena. And this time, same thing with the Kings, same thing with the Nuggets, same thing with the Sonics. My first time walking in the, in the arena and looking around and realizing I'm here. And this, this is something that I, I dreamed of as a kid. And I dreamed, of course, being the player, but still being able to walk in and being invited, not having to pay to go in and uh, take the game seriously every time I go in. But those, the first time in each of those places definitely was very important. Very cool. Love ending with a good story. So Dean Oliver, assistant coach for analytics with the Washington Wizards. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Paul. Thanks again to Dean Oliver, Wizards assistant coach for analytics for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Dean O underscore Lytics, L-Y-T-I-C-S. And check our show notes for more stories on what he's doing with the Wizards, a link to his book, Basketball on Paper, and more. I'm going to bring in True Media's Senior Director of Analytics, Albert Larcata. Albert and Dean were two of the founding members of ESPN's analytics team back around 2011. Then they worked together here at True Media for about four years. So Albert has known Dean and worked with them for quite some time. Uh, one thing Dean kind of talked about, sports franchises and ESPN kind of similar in some ways. The goals are different. Teams want to win. ESPN wants to produce good content. Their methods are often similar. So Albert, you were with him at the beginning of this analytics group at ESPN. What was that like for you guys? It was an interesting time. So yeah, it was 2011. Dean, myself, uh, Alok Patani, and uh, Jeff Bennett, who you, you had on the pod a couple months ago. We basically came from different places. Alok and I were both at ESPN. Dean had just been with the uh, Nuggets, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so kind of came together and it was weird. It was like the, the idea of an analytics team all made sense in theory. And it was, it was a good idea, right? Like they, the goal, our goal was to enhance the storytelling toolbox of ESPN. So um, that sounds great on paper. So we have our first meetings. We're like, okay, so how are we going to enhance the storytelling toolbox of ESPN? Just for a few reasons, ended up being QBR, which is our quarterback rating, which is derived off of expected points added, uh, became our first project. And it was wild that one of the reasons we chose that was ESPN had this project going called Year of the Quarterback, right? which was uh, sort of our our tie-in such that we were building the metric to put it on ESPN.com to better explain quarterback performance and all that. But one of the outputs of this was in August before the 2011 NFL season, they were going to produce a show on QBR, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. to my knowledge, yeah, it was an interesting process. Having never worked together before, having never really developed a metric before, now all of a sudden, not just do we have to do a good metric, we have to like make a good TV show about it. So it's just wild to debut a stat like that. And then it drew over a million viewers uh, across s- several airings. Um, right. l- looking back on that, like for our first sort of foray into being a team and building a metric to have that as your final 
destination, if you will, was mm-hmm. was, was pretty interesting. But yeah, it's not like those shows are getting rolled out for every new metric or anything. So I mean, it's still a pretty big deal. Yeah. No. Exactly. Ten years later. It, exactly. So I know one of the things that we like about Dean is his Deanisms, if you will. I know he gave a couple of them out during the pod, you know, he had a metaphor with basketball analytics and ice cream. He had a quote that he uses a lot about eyes watching one game better and numbers watch all the games. Uh, what other Deanisms do you remember that kind of stick with you as we move through this analytics world? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. The, the, the one he said in the pod, eyes watch one game better, uh, but data watches all the games, some variation of mm-hmm. that. He, he says that all the time. And maybe I've just worked with him too long, but it's true. I think he's right. Yeah. So yeah, other Deanisms. He would always say from his time with teams, and he, even when we worked at ESPN together, we used to do this as well. Never use numbers to start a conversation with a non-numbers person. So yep. basically always tell a story without numbers. The numbers should absolutely shape your opinion and you should do the work to you know do the proper analysis to, to, to form the right opinions on whatever it is you're studying. But if you can't explain your opinion without numbers, that's not good enough. Go back and... Yeah study it more and don't lose the attention of or the open-mindedness of people by blitzing them with numbers and then yep. a, a variation of that that um alok our again our former colleague reminded me of was uh dean describing our jobs as translating words into numbers and then back into mm-hmm. words meaning <laughs> you have to think of what it is you're trying to do like what study are you trying to build what model you're trying to build whatever it is and articulate that with words what are you trying to do then do the numbers if you will and run the 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 analysis but again translate that once that's done back into words so that it can be explainable to anybody you don't need to understand modeling or anything like that to understand the the stories that come out of your analysis so he was big on on that type of thing sort of any any work that you do make sure that it's explainable to anybody yeah i think I know I've heard him say, or maybe interviews, he quoted, I want to say it was Einstein. It might've been someone else who said something like, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't know it well enough. And you know, that's the same sort of thing is just be able to get it out quickly. It was applicable for media because you have such a limited amount of time, whether it's in a meeting or on air, it's applicable in teams because as he said, he had like five minutes in uh, pregame meetings to get his point across maybe. And at halftime, they have five minutes to figure out what they're going to say and five minutes to tell the players. Time is of the essence, so you got to know what you're talking about. Yeah. One other general thought I kind of had just working with him a lot, I like how, and I think you can hear this on the pod, the gears in his head are always turning. Like if you're talking to him, you can just almost see them whirling inside and the thoughts are always going because he's operating on, on so many different levels. Uh, it goes for a lot of people in kind of the higher analytics space. Uh, any other Dean stories that, that you want to get out while you got the platform here? Good Dean stories. So obviously he loves basketball, right? Like right. that's sort of where he made his name. And it's it's I'm sure if you ask him, they'll say that's his favorite sport. But he's really, really into outdoor sports as well in terms of actually doing it. He and his wife, Marcia, go on some crazy hikes and wall climbing and biking and all that type of stuff. He has family in Hawaii and his wife's family is all from Brazil and they usually go to both places almost every year mm-hmm. and do stuff like that all the time. So he's a bit of a wild child. Oh, and, and, and I remember when we worked at ESPN, uh, we both lived about a mile apart in this town called West Hartford, which was, I don't know, maybe 15 miles or so from ESPN's campus in Bristol. And during the summers, he would 
wake up, get on his bike and ride his bike 15 miles each way Ooh. from West Hartford to Bristol, leaving, you know, 6 a.m. or whatever, getting there at 730, shower in the gym and then just go to work. And then at the end of the day, bike back home. So he was biking 30 miles a day just on a random Tuesday d- during the summer which I, I don't know. I mean, you work there too. I can't recall anyone doing anything like that that I knew of at ESPN. Not much. I lived like two blocks from campus for a while and then like a mile and a half after that and I had no interest in riding my bike. Dean's not really perpetuating the numbers nerd stereotype here. He's breaking through that, huh? Yeah, he loves sport. I mean, he'll talk, to, he'll talk about any sport with you. He being sort of where he is in the industry. He's had the opportunity to meet a lot of people in a lot of different places within organizations across sports. And he is a great ambassador for what we do on the analytics side, but just generally speaking, just a great guy. Yeah. I mean, when he was here at True Media, he he did a little basketball, but it was mostly football work, you know, dealing with teams, developing metrics, things like that. So it's not like uh, he's pigeonholed himself into basketball. He's obviously most known for that, et cetera, and should be. But yeah, all-round analytics person for sure. All right. Thanks, Albert. Thanks again to Dean for joining us on the show. For more on ESPN Stats and Information Group, check out the Expected Value Archives. Uh, Albert mentioned the conversation with Jeff Bennett. He's the VP of Stats and Info, the man who hired Dean and Albert and me at ESPN. Uh, We've also chatted with Paul Sabin, who currently works in ESPN's analytics group, particularly on the various metrics they develop. For more basketball talk, we have episodes with Spencer Anderson, the Pacers Director of Basketball Analytics, and Eric Tebow, Associate Head Coach of the Washington Mystics. You can find those in the archives, too. While you're there, please rate and review the show. We always appreciate five stars and kind words. You can connect with us on Twitter at True Media Sports or email the show with thoughts or guest suggestions, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Stay safe, everyone.